God. We're in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, as you know. We're in Luke 23, so if you'd open your Bible there. If you don't have a Bible this morning, move close to somebody who does and read from their Bible. Our text this morning is Luke 23, verses 44 through 56. The topic is the death and burial of Jesus Christ. The title of our message is Funeral for a Friend. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we want to thank you for all of the accounts of your death and burial. This morning, especially for the account from Luke, we want to ask ourselves why he concentrated on certain details and left others out. And we want those things to begin to enrich us and inspire us and encourage us as if you had a message just for us this morning out of these familiar words. And in fact, Lord, you do. Because we believe that the Word of God is always alive, that it's living, and that it has a power in and of itself when it's read and when it's taught, and that it is a message for today, for right now, for my heart, and for the hearts of all those that have gathered here. And I pray for believers, Lord, those of us who have come to Christ and trusted Him for eternal life, that we would be amazed, Lord, at your love for us displayed on the cross and afterward and every day of our life. And for anyone here, Lord, that is not yet a Christian, they're not a believer. Maybe they think they are, maybe they know they're not. Lord, that their ears would be open, that their heart would receive the Savior during this season, Lord, that we celebrate His coming. We pray for your power and glory here, Lord, nothing of ourselves, but only you. Be lifted up, be exalted, be praised in each heart and life, and may we go out of this place rejoicing in the gift of eternal life. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. I've never done a rush funeral. No one has ever called and said that their loved one has just died and must be buried within the next three hours. 
we would think it's strange, almost uncaring to hurry a funeral. In many cultures, however, funerals are expected to be fast. Sometimes they are within two or three hours after death. The Jewish culture of the first century practiced fast funerals. The burial of Jesus would have been a quick affair under normal circumstances. It was even more so because the Sabbath was approaching. From the time Jesus dismissed his spirit until the beginning of the Sabbath was only three hours. For all its seeming haste, the burial of Jesus had been planned for a long time. Not that Joseph of Arimathea had gone down to people's funeral chapel ahead of time to make arrangements. That's not it at all. Jesus, his father, and God the Holy Spirit had pre-planned the burial. Listen to these words. They're from the prophet Isaiah. They're found in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Fully 700 years before Jesus died as a criminal, but was buried in a rich man's tomb, the prophet Isaiah let us know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had pre-planned the events of that day. When you plan a funeral, you include certain elements that will be meaningful in both remembering the deceased and comforting the survivors. While it seems on first reading that Jesus' burial had none of these things, in fact, there was and is a depth to the pre-planning that is not only meaningful, but it is very moving. We want to see those elements as we attend Jesus' funeral through the eyes of Luke. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus died and you exit God's wrath. And number two, Jesus was buried and you enter God's rest. First of all, in verses 44 through 49, Jesus died and you exit God's wrath. The crucifixion lasted from 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. During those six solemn hours, Jesus spoke seven separate times from the cross. He spoke three times between 9 o'clock and noon. From noon until 3 o'clock, darkness covered the land and Jesus remained silent. Then at three o'clock, he spoke four more times in fairly rapid succession. Luke focuses our attention on two miracles that took place during those final three hours. And that's where we pick up the story again in verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. The sixth hour of the Jewish day was noon. It was six hours from sunup. And it was Passover. This was the Passover time of the year. And so the moon would be full. This made an eclipse of the sun impossible. The darkness over the land of Israel and at just that precise time, for just that precise length of time, this was a miracle. The veil of the temple was the veil that separated two inner chambers of the sanctuary. It separated what was called the holy place from what was called the holy of holies. The holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat was placed. It represented this inner chamber, the presence of God on earth. 
It could only be entered once a year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest. It was a substantial veil that separated it from the rest of the sanctuary and tabernacle. The veil was about six inches thick. It wasn't like your cafe curtains or anything like that. It was a big, thick, woven, heavy veil. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that it was torn from top to bottom as if someone had reached out and torn it in half. The tearing of the veil and at just that precise moment, it too was a miracle. And so remember those two miracles. We're going to return to them in just a moment. Verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. By dismissing himself to death, Jesus was showing that his death was completely voluntary. Jesus summoned death to serve him. When you can die voluntarily and when you can summon death to serve you, then you have conquered death. Jesus Christ has conquered death and he has conquered it for every man. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's considered by many a quote from Psalm 31 verse 5. Those words were a favorite bedtime prayer for Jewish children. We might say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if the Lord my soul should take, I pray something that I've forgotten. But anyway, it was a bedtime prayer. And, and I love this because Jesus died with a bedtime prayer upon his lips because he knew that his death was like a sleep that he would awaken from. He knew that he would be raised from the dead. But there's just such a beautiful and enduring, uh, endearing excuse me, quality to that. To see the sinless, perfect Son of God in his last breath speaking tenderly to his Father with all the gruesome terror that Jesus had been through in terms of, of, uh, of the crucifixion and the events leading up to it and, and, and all. And then he could just act with his Father as if he was just going to sleep. Just like you with your children as you're putting them to bed and kissing them goodnight and tucking them in and, and praying over them and, and leading them in their little bedtime prayers and reading the Bible stories. I mean, it's just the most beautiful thing in the world. It puts a, a whole different spin almost. Or it, it puts the crucifixion in a, in a very different light. Not taking anything away from it or the, the passion of it or all of those things, but, but it's just so beautiful. It, it, it's the most beautiful death the world has ever known as Jesus went through all of that and then said, now, Father, now I lay my soul to sleep. I'm coming to see in just a moment. I'm going to close my eyes now, Lord, and then we're going to be together again. And, and, and I thank you for that work that you've allowed me to do. It's beautiful just in and of itself. Now, there are at least two pre-planned elements in Jesus' death on the cross, and they relate to the two miracles that we discussed. They are details that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit wrote into Jesus' funeral in eternity past. They are a kind of cosmic choreography. And you're going to see them if you'll first of all remember that all of this was occurring at Passover. First of all, there was the three hours of darkness over the land. If you were a Jew, you would remember that at the very first Passover, when the Jews were still slaves in Egypt and Moses was attempting to deliver them and Pharaoh was giving Moses 
a hard time, not allowing them to leave. And the ten plagues came upon the land of Egypt. You would remember that the ninth plague was three days of darkness over the land. And you'd start to think that something was happening here. Egypt was surrounded by three days of darkness. The cross, three hours of darkness. Then there was the tearing of the veil. The Passover lambs were being slain. The high priest was offering incense to God in front of the veil. Jesus was on the cross. He was God's final sacrificial lamb. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how he was introduced to the Jews by his cousin, John the Baptist. And when John said that, this is the lamb, behold the lamb, Jewish people would understand that in some amazing sense, This man, Jesus Christ, fulfilled the Passover symbolism. He was in some sense a sacrificial lamb. The veil was torn as Jesus offered himself to God. The torn veil indicated that God the Father accepted Jesus once for all sacrifice and forever afterward the way into God's presence was open to all who come by faith in Jesus Christ. And to continue that Passover symbolism... The, the three days of darkness, then the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn son. Anyone that did not have the blood applied to their doorpost had their firstborn son killed. Now here was Jesus, God's firstborn, the only begotten son of God, dying in the place of every firstborn son of everyone of the race of Adam, as it were. Taking our place as the wrath of God, the judgment of sin came upon him that we might be set free. And so this is an amazing thing that's going on. This is drama. This is choreography. This is liturgy. It had been meticulously planned from before the creation of the universe in which God would place mankind, then watch us sin and then offer us salvation. If you will, it was as if God was using lighting and using props, staging this to explain the drama of redemption that is played out throughout human history. And it all ties in and it all comes together at the cross. I don't know how many of the Jewish people understood this symbolism. Maybe none this side of the resurrection, but it was there nonetheless. And it is the most amazing. It's, you know, those of you who like good stories or good movies or good plays or whatever. I mean, this is like the greatest drama of all time. This is the, you know, this wipes out. There wouldn't be a list of 100 greatest, you know, movies if this is it. God, from before the world was even created, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit designing and, and discussing this amazing event. And drawing from all of human history to that one moment and Jesus on the cross fulfilling it all. Now the folks at Jesus' death had a mixed reaction to it all. In verse 47, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. The question is often asked, did the centurion get saved? And I've heard yes answers and I've heard no answers. And the truth is we don't know. We have no idea whether this is a confession of faith or not. 
We don't know if he got saved. I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt, but we just don't know. It is interesting, though. What, what would we do with a statement like that? Well, it's interesting that many people would say and do say what he said, and yet they're not saved. For example, a large percentage of people in the United States would say that they believe in God and that Jesus, not just was he was a righteous man, but they say he was the son of God. They even believe he rose from the dead. But you and I who are Christians, we have a suspicion that many of those people are not born again. I've seen statistics as high as 95% of the people in the United States consider themselves Christians and believe in God. That's not true. They believe in God. They believe in Jesus even, but they don't trust in him for salvation. Scripture says that even the demons believe Jesus, they believe who he is, they know who he is, but it doesn't do them any good. They're lost. By the way, not to freak anybody out, but there are always people in every church, even a church like ours, who are not saved. But you think they are, and they think they are. And so uh, here's what I think you should do. And, of course, now if I tell you, you'll have to do this to somebody who's not here this morning because then they'll know what's going on, but... Some of the people that you fellowship with in our church, ask them at some point to give you their testimony. To say, hey, you know, we've known each other for a long time. and I, How did you get saved? What's your testimony? I'd, I'd like to hear that. And, you know, Christians, you should love to talk about how Jesus pulled you out of the muck and mire and set you on solid ground. And when you went from darkness to light and when you were born again and all that. I mean, it's a great thing not to brag about, but just to, to boast in the Lord. And you'd be surprised sometimes you ask people that I've asked people in counseling before or marriage counseling or pre-marriage counseling. I say, well, give me your testimony. What, how, you know, how did you get saved? And one of the red flag answers always is, well, I've gone to church my whole life. Oh, 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 plan B. Now you're into a whole nother line of questioning. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you can't, you're not saved, but it's, it's not the thing that you, you know, you don't start off with that. I mean, nobody at a Billy Graham crusade, when they're giving their testimony, gets up and says, I've gone to church my whole life. (laughs) They start talking about their life and and what it was and what it became when Jesus Christ became real to them. And, And I just don't think we ought to assume that people are saved because they came to church before us or because they use Christian language. We might have a mission field right here. And so be thinking about that, but do it in a Christ honoring way. Now in verse 48, the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. These were unbelievers. They beat their breasts in a sign of grief and sorrow. Something had stirred in them. They had some conscience of guilt for the death of this innocent man. The cross was having an effect upon them. As I indicated a moment earlier, no one had ever died this way. If you lived in and around Jerusalem, you had seen or at least were aware of many crucifixions. It was it was a common form of punishment. And, and, you know, it was public because it was a regardless our arguments to the contrary. The Romans believed it was a deterrent to criminals and people were aware of the agony and the terror of crucifixion and death by crucifixion. No one had ever died the way Jesus died on the cross, in control, voluntarily, 
summoning death to serve him, ministering to people, asking God the Father to forgive them. And there was something about the way he asked that you knew that he had the power to ask and that God would hear him. Saving the thief on the cross, promising him that he would be with him that very day in paradise. And the other sayings, his seven sayings from the cross, no one ever died with that kind of majesty and power and glory accompanied by miracles in the temple and in the sun. These people were affected. I'm not saying they were saved, but many of them, 40 days later, would be saved when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he preached to them and he said, this Jesus whom you crucified... And it would come to their hearts at that moment that the thing that they were struggling with, the thing that they were burdened about, was that they had put Jesus on the cross. Not that it was just awful or, or maybe they had some responsibility, but it was them personally, individually, each one of them that was responsible because he had died for their sins, that he had taken their place. Maybe it went off in their head that he was the Lamb of God, that he fulfilled all the symbolism that we've been talking about. Who knows? But over 3,000 3, came to the Lord on the day of Pentecost, and then many more after that. Then in verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. These were believers. They were confused. They misunderstood Jesus' words about his own death and resurrection. Now, this side of the cross, we might have been there sorrowing, but not as those who have no hope. And you and I would have bought tickets to the tomb. And we would have sat outside the tomb all during the night, wondering exactly when Jesus was going to raise from the dead. I mean, really, that's what it, it would have been an exciting thing. But they didn't understand this. I think we should uh, get, cut them some slack because this was all prior to the Holy Spirit being given to the church in an indwelling way course they were confused we should be harder on ourselves always than we are on the characters in scripture and so that's the reaction and anytime you have a funeral a death and a funeral you have a variety of reactions you have at least these three but you have you have a variety of reactions i've had funerals before where i felt not not just that i've officiated that but just funerals in general where i have preached or the gospel has been preached with such amazing clarity it astonishes me that I could be used that way or that another person could put... I think, man, I, I should quit being a pastor because this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. This guy should take over the church. I've never heard this before. This is amazing. And, and, and yet people don't get saved. Here's a dead person, someone they know and love. Where are they? I don't have any idea. I just want to get out of here. Go back to my life. I don't want to hear about eternal life. I don't want to know about the gospel. It's, it's an amazing thing. Others receive the Lord. They come to that point of understanding that, that this life will soon be passed and that there is a decision to be made. And so the crowd had a various reaction. Now, at this first Passover, at the first Passover, excuse me, back in Egypt, the lambs died. And the wrath of God passed over those who had applied the blood to their doors. They exited those doors out into freedom. As Jesus died, God's firstborn, the wrath of God against sinners passed over them. And so instead of you and I dying for our own sins, 
Christ died in our place. And now we can exit God's wrath forever and go out into a life filled with God's promises. The wrath of God against sin is no longer on you, against you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. All you do is apply the blood of the Lamb by believing on Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and you are free from sin and death forever. You not only exit God's wrath, you enter God's rest. Verses 50 through 56, Jesus was buried, and you enter God's rest. One man comes boldly to the forefront of the story, claiming Jesus' body for burial. Verse 50, now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. I've sometimes heard critical talk about Joseph being a secret believer or a closet Christian. All I can say is that Luke gave him high praise, calling him a good and just man. And he stepped forward at just the time God had prepared him for. Maybe this morning you feel as though you're not doing very much for God. Well, first of all, that could be true. It might be that you're not doing very much for God. You want to, but something is holding you back. I think you just need to be set free and realize that the people in the Bible, they're just ordinary, normal people who asked the Lord to use them and then stepped out in faith. They volunteered to do something. They got involved. And so, uh, you know, uh, maybe you do need to take an evaluation of your life and say, you know, I need to get in gear. I need to be doing something for the Lord. But it's also true that God raises up individuals at just the right time to accomplish his eternal purposes. And so generally what I get from Joseph of Arimathea is seek first the kingdom of God. Spend time with the Lord and God will tell you what to do. Then step out boldly when he does. Because it says there he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was seeking the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then do what God tells you to do. Step out and do it. Verse 52, this man went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down, he wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. Now, we've already mentioned that this was in fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy. Joseph wasn't trying to fulfill prophecy. God was fulfilling it through Joseph. I mean, he wasn't at home reading Isaiah thinking, man, where do I get a new tomb and how can, I, how can we bury Jesus so that it fakes people out for centuries into thinking that he's the son of God? Now, you and I think that's funny, but when you watch these programs on television, they want you to believe that the writers of Scripture were liars, that they were deceivers, that they, they wrote, uh, uh, you know, many, many years after these things happened and that they made up a bunch of things so that they could, what? develop a religion where people died and where they were martyrs. I mean, I don't understand that. It's insane. But here's the problem with people who are not Christians who think they're smart. And there's a lot of them. They come to the Bible. They read what the Bible says. And they say right from the beginning, that can't be true. Why? Because if it was true, then there is a God and Jesus is his name and we should give our hearts and lives to him. But that can't be true because I don't want to do that. 
Therefore, if this is not true, how can I explain the story and how can I kind of feel figure out how this might have come about? Oh, well, they tried to they read these things, you know, 700 year old prophecies and they tried to fulfill them. It takes a lot more faith to believe that than just to take God at his word. And so don't don't get swayed by these things. This is the word of God. It's inspired by the spirit of God. This is a historical account. The, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're the most provable events in human history. And then when you get into some of the symbolism of it and the things behind the scenes, no one is smart enough to think that up. God had this planned from before the creation of the universe. And you and I take it at face value and it changes our hearts and it changes our lives for eternity. Verse 54, that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. They would need to be done before sundown, before 6 p.m., because they couldn't be dealing with dead bodies after that. They were thus in quite a rush. When you consider that Jesus dismissed his spirit at 3 p.m., he was on the cross. They had to go to Pilate, take his body down, get it over there to the tomb. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. They didn't really have time to anoint Jesus' body the way they would have liked. They noted where he was buried, and then they went home and prepared to return after the Sabbath. There is more drama, more to marvel at, in this seemingly hasty funeral. Luke twice noted that it was the Sabbath, which is the seventh day of rest. It's your clue something more is being communicated. When you see things in Scripture in a short period of time being repeated... That repetition is there for a reason. It's for a devotional reason or a doctrinal reason, and we should try to understand it. And so he's talking a lot about the Sabbath here. Of course, it, it was the Sabbath, but he wants to remind us of it. Jesus had been on the cross from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m., exactly six hours. It was followed by the Sabbath. Now, the number six and the Sabbath, that ought to remind you of something. What does it remind you of? It reminds you that God created the universe working for six days. And then on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, he rested from his work. Scripture declares elsewhere that it was Jesus who created all things with the Father and the Spirit. Colossians 1.16, Hebrews 1.2, John 1.3 all declare that Jesus created all things. So we could say that Jesus worked for six days to create the universe, and then he rested on the Sabbath. Now Jesus had worked for six hours on the cross to redeem his lost and fallen creation. Now he would rest on the Sabbath. When Jesus rose from the dead on the Sunday following that Sabbath, it was not just the beginning of another week. It was the beginning of a new way of life, literally of a new creation. Not that there will be a literal new creation in the future, but Scripture says that we are new creatures, new, a new creation in Jesus Christ when we come to know him. And so there's a beautiful symbolism here. Every day could and it should be a Sabbath of rest in the Lord as you cease from your work and simply allow him to empower you from within. And this is why I believe that there is no more keeping a Sabbath day once a week. You are to live a daily life, 
24 hours a day, seven days a week of supernatural rest as you walk with God. Those who try to keep a 24-hour weekly Sabbath are trying to return to a way of life that was finished and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. They are in some sense returning to a life of works rather than living a life of faith. They are limiting God rather than honoring God. You know how often it seems that people who are doing something tangible, like keeping the Sabbath, don't they seem so much more spiritual than you? Oh, I I can't because it's the Sabbath. From sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, I don't do this, that, or the other thing. And and there's a sense, you you have an immediate sense that somehow they're more spiritual than you because they're doing something for the Lord. And then you have to back up and say, no, wait a minute. The Lord did everything for me. And the Sabbath is full of symbolism. And what happened that, that day that Jesus died, he rested from his work. It was done. The work of creation was done and then we ruined it. And then Jesus said, well, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do some other work. Not for six days, but for six hours. And then I'm going to rest from that. And when I raise from the dead, that's going to be done. That's going to be over with. And instead of keeping the law and keeping the Sabbath and remembering that, which was temporary, just enter into an every day of rest with me. I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. I'm sending you my Holy Spirit. He's going to live inside of you. There are no works to do except to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You want to keep a Sabbath? Do it. But it's every day, all the time, as you yield yourself over to the control of God the Holy Spirit. And so, freak out your Sabbatarian friends. And when they say, hey, do you guys over there at Calvary Chapel keep the Sabbath? Tell them you absolutely do. You believe in the Sabbath. It's just that you keep it every day, all the time, round the clock, as you rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is really quite a funeral. What we sometimes look at and think how sad that they got the body down and quickly, you know, wrapped it up and threw it in a tomb. God had been pre-planning from before the foundation of the earth that this was the most amazing funeral with symbolism and drama and lighting and and all that that had ever happened and ever would. What seems to be a hastily thrown together last minute affair by Joseph and a few godly women who weren't afraid of the Roman guards was planned from forever. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are masters of drama and timing, of lighting and props, if you will, all to communicate to you that eternal life is yours for the asking. I love this kind of thing because... Not all of us are academic. I mean, some people, they just have a mind to where they just, you know, they want the facts and they see these things. But, but you know, I like a good drama. I like a good story. And this is a great story. It's the unfolding drama of redemption. It's, it's all of human history coming together in a moment of time as Jesus Christ dies and is buried. And, and it's, it's moving. It's moving. Have you ever seen something, a, a painting or read a story? Or I know some of you cry at the end of movies and they're, they're stupid movies. I cry at the end of some movies. I'm going to tell you which ones, but I cry. Children's movies sometimes, you know, old yeller. Man, that just tears your heart out. We are emotional people to a certain extent. We need to see these things, 
not necessarily visualized on a screen or, or brought to life as a drama, but you need to see the drama and understand the lengths that God has gone to to reach lost humanity in every possible way of communicating that you can imagine. He's done it. I was thinking earlier, I don't know why, but I was thinking about just the worship this morning and, and the worship that we have here at Calvary Chapel. And, and, and uh, occasionally I read, there's a, there's a certain guy, I really love this guy. You'll know who it is when I'm, I'm not going to give you his name, but some of you read his stuff. Just hates the worship choruses that we sing at Calvary and that other churches sing because they're so repetitive, he says. They're just, all you do is repeat the same phrase over and over again. They're not full of doctrine and purpose like the great songs of the church. I don't have anything against the great songs of the church, the hymns or anything. I really don't. I think they're great. But you know what I like about worship choruses? You know what I like about their repetition? They're romantic. You know, I, I don't just relate to God on a theological level, on, a, on an academic level. Oh God, I thank you this morning that you are grand and that you are mighty and that you are the creator. And, you know, I mean, that's fabulous. Those are true. I'm, I'm not really even trying to make fun of that. I think that's, a, that's an amazing thing. But when I see Jesus at the end of the Bible say, the one thing that bothers me about you guys is that you've left your first love, then I want to get into a song that just, you know, Lord, I love you. What does that mean? I don't know. I love you, love you, love you. <laughs> those of you who are married, those of you who are married, I mean, how many different ways can you say, I love you? Well, of course, you say it in actions and you say it in deeds and all. But, but at some point, it always comes down to that, doesn't it? I love you. You've been married close to 30 years like I have. Some of you more, some of you less. You've said that an awful lot. God forbid that anybody would say, I can't stand you telling me you love me anymore. It's so repetitive. Can't you just say, you made a mighty meatloaf. Thank you for your paycheck. You know, I mean, there's a truth. Now, really, there's a truth to that. There's a joy to that. Those things are necessary. But I forget the meatloaf and forget the money that bought it. I mean, do you love me? I love you. I love you, love you, love you. There was a song. There was a chorus we used to sing. It was just, I love you, love you, love you, love you, my Lord. And I just, there's something about that. I'm not saying they're better songs. They're different songs. They're songs of romance. They're songs of passion. They're the kinds of things that you would say to somebody that you love. And we do love the Lord, don't we? Amen. If you're a Christian, remain at rest. It's that spiritual quality of life available to you available to you moment by moment as you cease from your own work and just let God do his work in and through your life. And you think, well, how does that work? Get into God's word. Let his word get into you. Do what it says, believing that you are enabled by the Holy Spirit to do everything God's asked you to do. If you're not a believer, wrath is the only word you need to be concerned about this morning. It's not that God is angry with you, that he's a mad God. It's that sin has separated you from God. And he has to judge sin. He can't just ignore it. It was judged and punished once for all when Jesus died on the cross. The wrath of God fell upon him in all of its fury. So that it never need fall on any human being. But that only happens 
when you personally, individually trust Jesus Christ as your substitute on the cross and sacrifice for sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. We love you. We love you, love you, love you. Your great love for us was exampled on the cross. Greater love has no man that he would lay down his life. And Jesus, you laid down your life for the lost mankind, for those who still hate you, who still mock and, and deride you and rebuke you. You died for them and are still... I've been saying throughout history, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so I pray, Lord, that we would enter into the joy of your salvation. If there's anybody here this morning, Lord, that's not a Christian, would you bring them forward after the service, repenting of their sin, asking, begging, what must I do to be saved? And I pray that we would have the joy of leading them to Christ and hearing, spiritually speaking, the angels rejoicing in heaven. For those of us who love you, Lord, I pray that we would love you more and more and more. I think every day in some small or large way we are leaving our first love because we are getting so distracted by the, the world and the things of the world. We don't want to, Lord. We want to be in love with you. We want to remain in love with you. We want to be filled with your love and grace and mercy. We really, really do. Inspire us, Lord, to look to you. Look away from everything else that, that we might even hold dear. And look only to you that you might fill our hearts with wonder and glory and the power of a crucified life. That we would walk in the resurrection power of Jesus. And that we would have something to offer to others, Lord, of this beauty and grace that you exampled for us. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.